Hello and welcome to A Novel Process, the podcast about what it's really like to write a book. My name is May Jasper. Okay, gang, this is season two, episode two of the podcast where I am writing a novel and every fortnight I make an episode to tell you guys how it's going. And one of the things that I've been doing this fortnight, as well as trying to write a novel, is doing a theatre show, which uh, I won't explicitly plug to you because that's gauche, but it's about James Joyce. And in the show, one of the things that gets talked about is the fact that Joyce's writing style has been described as imaginative transubstantiation. And this is going somewhere, I promise. But transubstantiation is actually a a concept from religion, from Catholicism. And the idea being that when you have a mass, a Catholic mass, you have the, uh, the bread and the wine, and that in some uh, religions, even other Christian religions like Anglicanism, if you drink those things, they are like, you know, a representation, a symbol of Christ's body and blood. But in Catholicism, there is a belief in literal transubstantiation, meaning that when the priest blesses the bread and the wine, they become the body and blood of Christ. Literally, they are transformed or transubstantiated. And that Joyce, who was Irish and Catholic and was really reacting to his Catholic upbringing, even though he hated all that stuff, he'd sort of internalised this idea of transubstantiation. And so when he wrote, he would take the everyday reality of his life and make it into something else. And that the sort of limitation there is that you have to write from life. You don't make things up. You take what you have, you take real things that have happened to you or you've seen, and you invent on them and riff on them and make them into something else. One of the ideas put forward in this play that I'm doing is that Joyce thought that that way of writing, he didn't like that that was his way of writing. He felt like it wasn't very imaginative. He felt like he should be able to create new things rather than just taking the stuff of his life. When I read that in the play, that was one of those moments where I almost where I decided to do the show because that is a thought that I have had a lot. When I was a playwright back in the day, I often described my plays to people as me talking to me. You know, my characters didn't seem to me to have their own way of talking. They all just talked like me because they were coming out of my brain. I found it very difficult to imagine how I could make them sound different. In particular, I, I wrote a play called A Month of Sundays The idea of that show was that it was a whole lot of conversations that people had after big nights out, like over brunch, and I would describe it to people as it's a whole play of me talking to me about dumb shit that I've actually done. (laughs) Nothing in it was new. Everything was just from my life and wasn't I a hack. As I've got older and less critical of myself, I've tried to think of that as just the way that I write. I don't have big fantastical ideas about other worlds that are totally unlike the one we know. Even now, when I'm trying to write a sci-fi novel, I'm doing a lot of research into the real world and I've and I've it's ended up becoming, I guess it's urban sci-fi. I mean, I don't know if you can call it urban given that we're not in a city, it's in a small town, but like real life, you know, hard sci-fi rather than being in a you know on a planet far far away a long time ago big broad crazy star wars stuff you know and i would like to be the person who just invents things out of my brain but this fortnight 
had like reinforcement for how good research can be and how useful and how like creative it can be uh, because I had this conversation with a guy called Lewis. Lewis is a friend of a friend. I may have mentioned him before because I have talked to him before and he was my like geologist person. He gave me a whole lot of stuff about what the world of the cave might be like. But he mentioned at the time that being a geologist, he'd spent a lot of time working in mining. And I sort of filed that away in case that became important. And what I'd been thinking this fortnight, one of the things, was that in this new version of the book, where we're starting right from the start of the story, we're seeing the town, we're seeing the the dying town, and we're seeing the finding of the aliens and the, uh, you know, the negotiations around coming to the agreement around trading like human brains for this, this resource that one of the things that's going to have to happen in that version of the book is that we're going to have to set up the company that sells the Zykoft and that I know nothing about setting up companies. In particular, that the closest thing to that, the closest company structure to that, felt like it was probably a mining company. So I wanted to do some research into what, how do you actually do that? How, what is the process for setting up a mining company? So I called Lewis. And that was what I wanted to talk to you about, just that small thing, very practical, very real-world thing that was going to provide maybe some jargon to go into Act 2, maybe a bit of structure around like what the steps for how that part of the story was going to process. But whenever I interview somebody about the book, what I generally do is talk them through the premise of the book at the start of the interview, just in case it sparks off any stuff that's useful. And Lewis already knew the the premise because we talked about it before, but I kind of gave him an update. And so imagine we're here, we're starting the interview and I say to Lewis, okay, so the book's set in like a dying small town. Haven't really worked out why it's it's dying or dead yet. I was actually thinking, because I had literally read an article that morning about dying small towns, I was actually thinking that maybe there used to be a mine in the town and the mine had closed down. And offhand, I said to him, that sounds right, right? That's a thing that happens. And the trouble with mentioning things offhand to people who are enthusiastic about their subject is that they then talk for 10 minutes. So (laughs) Lewis said, oh, yeah, that's definitely possible. You know, mine's closed down for lots of different reasons and gave me a rundown of why that stuff happens, which is really useful. He talked about the fact that different mines get set up depending on what they are mining, and they therefore have different levels of what economic feasibility means. Go with me. I know this sounds boring, but but bear with me. So if you're mining something like, say, iron, yeah, where you're going to need to get a lot of it out of the ground for it to be profitable, right? Iron's really useful, but you need a lot of it. It's not valuable necessarily in of itself. When it comes to iron, you have to refine it. But turning raw iron ore into steel, in that process, you're not losing a lot of weight or bulk. And what that means is that when you have an iron ore mine, you may as well transport the iron ore to somewhere else to turn it into steel because you're going to have to move a big heavy thing anyway, it's better to have the processing part of that happen closer to an urban centre, closer to a transport hub, something like that. Whereas 
if you're mining something valuable like gold, then it's better to, because there is a real difference between how much you're going to take out of the ground and how much of the valuable material you're going to end up with. It's better to do the processing near the mine. So you get a whole lot of like quartz and gold mixture out of the ground and then you uh, refine that and break it down and get it down to just the gold. And then because gold is so expensive, it might be that if where you're mining it's not very accessible, you just put that gold onto a helicopter and fly it to somewhere else because it's light enough. A small amount of gold can be worth enough money to be able to keep that mine going even if a whole output for a mine for a certain period can be fitted onto a helicopter. All that's really interesting. It's not, you'll notice, answering my essential question for the interview, which is about setting up a mining company, but really interesting, really useful, gives me context. Fabulous. So we scale back and I go back to saying, right, so the premise, it's in a dying town uh, and let's say, let's say for the purposes of this that it is, used to be a mining town and it's no longer a mining town. And we have a couple of guys go out and are exploring a cave and they come across the aliens. I haven't worked out why they're exploring the cave yet, but, you know, I'll do that. And Lewis says, oh, yeah, because they're prospectors. And I went, what? And he said, if it's a mining town, like if it used to be a mining town, then there'd be people prospecting. And I went, first of all, my first thought that I didn't verbalise to Lewis is, there are still prospectors? Prospectors is not like a thing from the old West. Like that sounds like a like a the, like the crazy man in the Wild West cartoon. But okay, cool. There are still prospectors. The thought that I verbalized to Lewis was, but why are they prospecting at a dead mine? Like if if the mine's tapped, they should go prospect somewhere else. He's like, no, well, I mean, and he said, well, look, in particular, if you're mining something valuable like gold. The thing is that just because the mine stopped operating, that's not necessarily because there's no gold there. It means that they got to the point where the amount of gold they were getting out of the ground wasn't valuable enough to justify the mining operation. But the value of gold goes up and down all the time. So if the the value of gold went up, then even a small amount of gold that you were still able to get out of the ground might make it viable. And equally, if you find a new strain or um, a new, you know, a new amount of ore somewhere nearby where it used to be, like that's not unheard of. So prospecting at a dead mine is is a is a common thing to do, and it, and and you know it has this potential too, where people have to have licenses to prospect or to to mine at certain areas. So it can be if you don't have a license, you can be like illicitly prospecting or coming in and and sneaking into an abandoned mine and looking around. And so maybe you're not doing this. My first thought is that is so much drama that has just been added to the start of my novel from nowhere, just from actual research, not from me inventing something, just from real life. I can now have my two guys. One of them is a crazy old prospector. That is such a vibrant idea who's digging around this abandoned mine that everybody knows is tapped and done and broken. And then we have our our main character, who I'm calling Dave, because I like that name and everybody gets called Dave, who used to work at the old mine. He's a geologist, maybe, like Lewis. 
And he uh, has been out of work and, and in this dead town and bored to tears. And he gets like bailed up by this guy at a pub who's got a crazy idea about, oh, I know, I know where there's more gold, man. I know where there's more gold. And Dave's bored, so they sneak into the mine uh, after hours. And I'm sort of talking Lewis through this as I talk, and I'm like, maybe they get lost and they wander into a cave. But why would they get lost? I mean, Dave knows this mine, right? Lewis is like, oh, no, 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 you can get lost in a mine. So easy. Like even a mine that you know really well, all the corridors of it are the same. You know, like they, it's so hard to keep track of, of where you are. And, and if nobody's been in there in a number of years, like there's probably equipment not where it used to be. And like, yeah, that's really easy to imagine. And I was like, okay. I mean, that's why they go into the mine though, but I want them to go into a cave. I need my aliens to live in a cave. And Lewis was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. I mean, the mine could have intersected with a cave any number of times. Like if you're digging a mine through an area that's full of caves, like that's naturally going to happen. But why do they need to live in a cave? And I said, oh, well, because, you know, they're, you remember they're, they're salamanders and they're from an ocean planet and they're amphibious, so we need like an, a cave that links to the ocean so they have like access to water and, you know, they need to live partially in water. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, well, that's totally doable. I mean, particularly because like half the battle with mines is getting rid of water. So if this is an abandoned mine, there'd probably be big sections of it that are full of water by now. And now, again, we're adding more colour and excitement. I've been picturing the aliens living in natural caves, and it sounds like they still can, but living literally in the abandoned mine, the symbol of the failure of this town, this flooded fucked mine is now infested with a new species that is maybe the hope for their salvation but is also creepy and horrible because they want human sacrifice and is living in a creepy and horrible waterlogged underground labyrinth that's so cool i love it (laughs) and again You'll remember the point of this interview was me to ask Lewis about how you set up a mining company. We still haven't got there. We're just riffing and writing the book together at this point. (laughs) So having gone through all of that, I then get to my actual questions and I'm asking Lewis about, okay, so how do you you set up a mining company? And he he refers me to this thing called the JORC code, which was established to regulate how people who have found a mineral resource can report it and how you can get that information out to, you know, potential investors and that sort of stuff. And he talks me through why these codes are in place. Apparently, one of the things that often happens, or and there's famous examples like uh, Brex, which is a famous fraud, but uh, various mining frauds where people do like surveys of an area, you know, they drill holes in the ground and they and they bring out materials. And the example in Briex, which I've researched a little bit since, is let's say you have some core samples or some drilling samples of the area around that you think there's there's gold in. You only take a very small sample of the material and you, and you have it analysed for how much gold is in there. And apparently, this guy literally started his fraud by having a soil sample or a rock sample and shaving bits of his wedding ring into the sample to try and imply there was more gold there. (laughs) And over time, the fraud got bigger, but that's the level you start at. Just let's put some shavings of a wedding ring in here and that'll 
encourage investment and bring more people in. So they have these regulations about how you you uh, publicize stuff, and it involves a lot of outside people coming in and doing assessments and and drilling holes and looking at at various things. And I'm thinking through out loud as he's talking about like that'll be so interesting for Zykoft because Zykoft is not going to be in the ground like that. And Lewis is like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, because Zykoft's a thing that they grow. You know, it's actually not a naturally occurring mineral. This is a thing that the aliens are growing on the walls of this cave that they live in. So if you were to drill a hole even a couple of metres away from the cave, a couple of metres back, you're not going to find any Zykoft. And if you go through and drill a hole through the walls of the cave, you know, if you go through the roof or something, you're going to get a very small amount, even though in reality they can make as much Zykoft as you want. Like it's not actually about hitting a, a, a mother load of Zykoft. They can grow as much as you want. I mean, it's not infinite, but it, it could be a lot. Lewis is like, what you're describing there is not mining, right? That's like farming or something. And I went, yeah, right. It's not, you're right, it's not mining. That's so interesting. I'd been assuming it was mining because it looks like mining. You're going into the ground and digging stuff up, but the business model's different. And what that means, which I think in my head, is that this is actually not tied to a place. All that stuff I was talking about at the start with assessing the economic viability of mining, a lot of that is around the fact that when you are mining, you are finding a valuable resource somewhere and that that valuable resource ties you to where that mine's going to be because that's where it occurs. And then the economic viability assessment stuff comes into play because it's like, okay, if I have to get this thing, this mineral, from wherever it occurs to somewhere else, to the people who are going to buy it, how viable is that process? Can I process it on site like gold and then put it into a, a, a helicopter? Is it valuable enough for that? If not, is it going to be available in big enough amounts like iron so that I can justify the cost of shipping it on trucks or whatever it is that I need to do to get it close to places where it can be transported easily or where people are going to buy it? But if I have a material that I can grow anywhere, am I going to grow it in this dead small town? Probably not, right? And so if the model, because again, Lewis tells me that when you are setting up a mining company like this, if you have, starting from kind of the prospector level, what you're doing is setting up a junior mining company and that then your aim is to be bought out by a big mining company. And the reason why is because mining is one of these industries that is very expensive up front and then pays off very slowly over time. So you spend a lot of money without necessarily having anyone buy anything for a long time, and then eventually you pay that back. And the people who have the ability to take that kind of risk and put that kind of money in up front are almost certainly one of the big mining companies. So if that's the model, then these guys could put Dave and, and his buddy Tom, the prospector, I don't know if I gave him a name, but Tom, let's say, they could invest a lot of time and, let's remember, kill a bunch of people 
into getting this to the point where somebody invests in it and believes that it is a industry that works. And then the big mining company turns around and once they understand how Zykoft works, moves everything away from our town and they get none of the benefit. There is a beat in screenwriting, beat meaning a, a point in the story that is important to have in all stories, called All is Lost. And the idea of All is Lost is that it comes in the second half of Act 2 and it's about the thing that you thought was important is done, is ruined. And that's because, you know, most stories are about somebody who thinks they want one thing, that is the thing that they want, and turns out what they need or what they should have is something else. So you have to kill the thing that they want in order for them to get to what they need. So this is the perfect way to kill what, what our characters in this story are supposed to want, Zykoft. Yeah, Zykoft was supposed to save the town. Zykoft was supposed to be the thing that brought it back from the brink. Suddenly, Zykoft is going somewhere else. And you're left with what you need, which is actually building a sense of community. Maybe taking the money you get from selling Zykoft or selling the ability to make Zykoft and then pumping that into the community and, and creating better access to healthcare or better community feeling or whatever it is, high-speed internet. I don't know. But yeah, anyway, my point after all this shouting, because I think, feel like this has been a bit of a shouty episode and I apologise, is that in this interview, which was designed to do a very small factual thing to give me answers to one small bit of the book, has literally improved the premise, improved Act 1 and the setup, given me greater understanding of what's going to happen in Act 2, and provided me the climax, a really essential beat to the end of the book as well. And all of that is going to ring true in a way that something I had invented I'm not saying that people who, who do invent this stuff more don't ever have stuff that rings true. That's not correct. But me personally, when I invent things out of my brain, they often sound false and poorly thought out just because they are, because real life is much more complicated than what I could ever invent in my brain. And by drawing on real life, this is going to hopefully make sense in a way that is instinctive and that gives the story more poignancy. I, I just, I love it. it. made me so excited. And it was so fun to talk to Lewis because he really got into it as well. That's a thing that has been also really fun in this whole process is these interviews end up being just like creative jam sessions with someone who knows a lot about their subject and very rarely gets to speculate about it. God, sometimes writing is really fun. Not all the time. Sometimes I'm very irritated, but not this week. This week, it's really fun. Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about for the last two weeks. I'll be back in a fortnight. In the meantime, I always love to hear from listeners about how they think the process is going. The place to leave questions or comments or just keep up to date with the novel process is on The Scene socials or at the website, the-scene.com.au. Have a good one. <laughs>